So just to get us going, what's, what's your favourite thing for a holiday? How would you chill out and stuff? I wouldn't mind sitting on a beach reading a book <clears throat> in the sunshine. Okay. That sounds like a great thing to do to me. While my wife and kids go swimming or something like that, I'll just okay. sit on the, gra- on the sand and, you know... I pick Chair. up the separation from the wife and family there seems to be the cause. <laughs> <laughs> well, we might have dinner later, but oh, I don't very want to go swimming okay. in the sea. That's very, very good. Thing. Um, you said earlier on you come from Sale. Yeah, I, I grew up in Manchester. Yeah, I was, I'm originally from the northeast. Okay. Yeah, you, so, like, all my me, family talk like that. Okay. The old Geordies, like, <laughs> and they all talk too quickly because you can't understand the word they're saying. I moved around the country quite. I moved around the country quite a bit as a kid. (laughs) (laughs) The gift of tongues. So I've I've lived in Gloucester and Margate. Okay. And but then I was a teenager in Manchester, so I feel like I grew up there. Okay. So I was wondering whether you support South Sharks Rugby Club. Uh, Yeah, I don't really like rugby. I liked my local football team and living in Trafford. Would anybody like to do the talk this evening? (laughs) Yeah, okay. Um, so just something a little bit more serious, possibly. Um, obviously, we joke about the king of church society, but you direct church society. You're, you, it's an important role. You've been doing it for quite a long time. Yep. What are the big challenges that you face? Not, not so much you personally, but what, is, what, what are the challenges for church society at the moment? Thank you. Well, church society is committed. It's on a board somewhere. I mean, we're committed to um, reforming and renewing the Church of England in biblical faith. So that means staying in the Church of England and trying to reform and renew it. And it's a big beast, and it's not easily susceptible to reformation and renewal. And people who do want to do that sort of thing are often trying to leave it and go elsewhere. So just trying to keep us together and continuing to focus on that as the goal Mm. is is quite a hard task. Interesting. So in that light then, in a moment, and we look forward to it, you're going to expound um, 1 Timothy 3 for us under the title of the pastoral charge. Um, we have a pastoral charge <laughs> every year at Jake. What, what, why a pastoral charge? Why does that matter? I don't know when it first got the title pastoral charge. Ros might know. When did we start calling it that? I started calling it that. Yes. I think it's Ros's um, title for this. But um, many years ago, when I was a, a, um, an undergraduate student, there, there was a thing in our church called You and the Ministry. And it was a way of getting people together who were thinking about doing ministry. I didn't want to go at first because I thought when they announced it that they were talking about you and the ministry. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, I, I, I'm not part of that. Um, <laughs> I went to those schools, so... I never went, but then we, I went along to, to one of these things, and one of the ministers who was speaking that, that day said that every year he tried to read through the pastoral epistles. He read the Bible anyway, but he tried to do some sort of in-depth study on the pastoral epistles of some sort every year. And I thought, that's a great idea. So I've always tried to do that myself. I took that as a, mm. a, a personal thing, including writing a commentary on the pastoral epistles a few years ago. Um, and I thought... When we're thinking about what to do at Jake every year, we should probably do that. We should probably have something on the pastoral epistles every year. So every time, every year when I've had a chance to dictate how things go, uh, direct. Uh, Serve. Uh, <laughs> I've said let's have something suggest somewhere, suggest, as we yeah. work together on this, that, um, that we have something on the pastoral epistles. So I started just by working through 2 Timothy, which took a few years. We worked through 2 Timothy. 
and then we went on to Titus in the past few years. And so I thought, we finished Titus, what should we do next? And it seems that this year, with all this stuff about bishops, priests, deacons, a good place to start would be 1 Timothy 3. I know I'm skipping <coughs> chapters 1 and 2. That's because I've been asked to speak on them at the FWS conference that's happening soon. So I'll do chapters 1 and 2 there. Um, and I'm actually speaking for a, uh, a group of people in the Anglican Church of North America on chapters 4, 5 and 6 later on this year. So I'm doing lots of stuff in 1 Timothy, but it's because we're trying to work through the pastoral epistles to sort of Brilliant. let the word on what a pastor should be kind of set the agenda for us in, in this group. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And well, if it makes you want to charge at something, then... All the better. All the better. Great stuff. Um, in a minute, I'm going to read that passage. Um, let me pray, and then we'll hear from Lee. Father, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to look into your word. And I pray now that as we read it together, uh, and as Lee expounds it for us, that it really would uh, equip us in our thinking about what ministry really should be about, as opposed to what we might decide we want it to be. Father, speak into our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm reading the whole chapter. I'm reading it in the ESV. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household... How will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, let them, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, 
taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Talk amongst yourselves. No. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Recalcitrant people. Um, good. Thank you for, for reading that for me. Um, okay, so we're going to look at 1 Timothy 3. And as you read it, of course, I'm thinking of all the details that I haven't included in my exposition there's so many different things in there that I wish I could have spent more time on there won't be as much time on deacons as there is on the first part about overseers and um, that's the way isn't it you always think there's so much more that we could put in but let me just read the last bit of that passage um, again I hope to come to you soon but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the whole point of the the chapter as a whole, and indeed I think the whole point of 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3, which this applies to, is to equip Timothy to know how to behave in the household of God. That's, that's the point. It's pretty obvious, really. It's pretty straightforward. Which is why he's been given um, instructions on prayer, on how men and women should conduct themselves in church gatherings in chapter 2. And since he was told to stay in Ephesus in order to stop certain people teaching false doctrine, chapter 1, obviously there needs to be some guidance on who should be teaching and leading in the church. So who should Timothy be appointing to those sorts of positions? That's what chapter 3 is about. The instructions until Paul gets back on how you should behave in the church. What we're talking about is an important role of stewardship over the household of God on ecclesiastical appointments. Not just any old household this. This is the household of God, notice. It is meant to be a pillar and a support to the truth of the gospel. The church is, as somebody has put it, the plausibility structure which holds up the truth, like a pillar, and adorns it and shows the world what the gospel looks like when it's lived out. Because it is the good news of a living God, not just a dead ancient tradition. Not just something that relies on a dead stone building, but a living church for a living God. And if that is so, then John Stott is right when he says that the nature of the church, the ministry is determined by the nature of the church. Just get that? The nature of the ministry is determined by the nature of the church. So he means if the church is meant to hold firmly to the truth in the midst of error, because it's a buttress of the truth, then the ministry of the church mustn't itself be infected with error. And if we are meant to be a pillar holding high the good news, then our lives mustn't be so far removed from the truth that they distract and undermine the truth of the mystery of godliness, which is Christ. 
So we must behave as those who are living in the household of the living God with the appropriate dignity and bearing. Uh, my favourite theologian from the medieval period summed it up nicely, uh, Peter Lombard, uh, when he uh, said this, It is better for the Lord's priesthood to have a few ministers who can worthily carry out the work of God than many useless ones who impose a heavy burden on the one who ordains them. For it is proper that the ministers of Christ be of such kind as are endowed with the sevenfold, see he always likes his sevens, I told you, uh, the sevenfold grace of the Holy Spirit, and by whose teaching and manner of life that same grace may be transferred to others, lest they trample upon the heavenly pearls of spiritual words and divine offices with the feet of a sordid life. Do you have feet of a sordid life? Then stay clear of the ministry. So let's look at what the Apostle Paul says about these two orders of ministry which are supposed to operate in the household of the living God. Because we'll find that Lombard is essentially right. The vital things are their teaching and their manner of life. As I said before, Lombard was wrong about a whole bunch of other stuff, but that's for another time. <laughs> that's it. Okay. So, overseers. In chapter 1 of uh, 1 Timothy, which of course wasn't split originally into chapters um, like this, Paul was rather scathing about false teachers in Ephesus, which is where Timothy is. He said that they had swerved away from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. They'd wandered away into vain discussion and, crucially, verse 7, chapter 1, they desired to be teachers of the law. The problem was they didn't really know what they were on about, these people who desired the status of teacher of the law. But just because the false teachers desired to be teachers of the law while being ignorant of it, that doesn't mean the desire for such a role is an evil thing in and of itself or something which disqualifies you per se. You know, I've heard people say this sort of thing, that if somebody wants to be a bishop or wants to be a theological educator or wants to be a vicar of a parish, then that's the sort of person that we should really discourage from such roles. What we really want is people who don't want it, or who have to be forced into it. Like Gregory of Nazianzus here on the screen uh, in the early church. God said, it, it should be you. See, that's why the the divine fig finger is pointing in the top of the picture. But uh, it, it should be you. But Gregory said, I don't want to be a priest. I don't want to be a priest. Thank you very much. And he ran away to Pontus instead. And he had to be forced into being a presbyter and later into being a bishop. That's the ideal, apparently. Lack of desire equals perfect choice. I think... I don't know what you think, but I think this is hyper-pietistic nonsense which can only be asserted by those who are overly enamoured with their own unexamined, faulty logic 
that they misheard from somebody else. And it will only lead to trouble if you think about it. See, it's true. We don't want people as overseers in the church if their only qualification is that they desire it. There has to be more than that. And we don't want those who desire to be overseers in God's household in order to throw their weight around to be seen as somebody important or for some other abusive or malevolent motive. And we don't want people who think that being an overseer in the church of the living God is a great way to escape boredom or another job that they got a bit fed up of. So, you know, if somebody's had enough of parish ministry, perhaps they've made a bit of a mess of it, it's too hard now, and they want to be a bishop instead, well, that's clearly not the sort of person who should be consecrated. Similarly, with theological education, if somebody thinks that parish ministry is too difficult or tedious, or they've made a hash of it somehow, and they'd like a better life instead, and so apply to be a lecturer at a college somewhere, well, that's not really the kind of person that we should be sending to Oak Hill or Wycliffe or St. Melitus. Lecturers are there to inspire and enthuse the next generation to work in the church, not to indulge their own intellectual pursuits in a more comfortable environment. But all of that is not logically the same as saying that if someone really wants to be a minister, that's the last person you should be ordaining. That's not the same thing. Because when the Apostle Paul talks about who should be ordained, he starts by talking about aspiration. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It is a noble task, Paul says, to be an overseer in the church of the living God. And if somebody aspires to that, I think by implication we can say that it's a noble aspiration, a worthy desire, provided that their motivation is equally noble, of course. That's the key thing. It is such a noble task It's important not to appoint just anybody. It is not a light and easy thing to take on such a role. And of course, you remember what it said in that passage we had from 1 Peter chapter 5 in the previous session. That a presbyter should serve cheerfully, willingly, not under compulsion. So, you know, obviously they're supposed to have desire to do the job. Which is actually funnily enough, really the point of the Gregory of Nazianza story, if you read it. He ran away to Pontus rather than being ordained in Nazianzus because he realised that the pastoral job that he was going to be given was so serious, so difficult and so noble a task that he just felt it was beyond him. And too dangerous for him to take on in view of Judgment Day. He said he was ashamed of others who grasped at such an office as if they thought this order to be a means of livelihood instead of a pattern of virtue or an absolute authority instead of a ministry of which we must give an account. 
Rather, he said, I did not, nor do I now, think myself qualified to rule a flock or a herd or to have authority over the souls of men. Because he was so serious. So if you desire to be an overseer, realise this today. It is a noble ambition. Indeed, I would say it is the noblest ambition of all, if it's what you're qualified for. Because the church of the living God, which he bought with the price of his own blood, is a precious and holy thing. To be a steward, an overseer, a minister of that church is perhaps the highest privilege that you could ever be blessed with after the more basic requirement and honour of being a regenerate child of God. But the risks of this role are proportionate to its height and dignity, as Gregory said, because it is a work, a task, and not simply a position of rank or status that we're talking about here. And if anyone aspires to that task, that's brilliant. That's great. But certain things are necessary before a person should be appointed to this role. It's a noble task, but it's not open to everybody. Paul advises Timothy to seek out only a particular kind of person for this noble task. Let's look at that person's specification, as it's nowadays called, in verses 2 to 7. Because being an overseer is a noble task, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. That's an interesting way to start a job advert, isn't it? That this person must be above reproach. That's not normally how job adverts start in the Church Times. Anyone read the Church Times? Here's a few that, uh, that I found in the Church Times recently. Uh, we are praying that you would like to travel God's pathway with us if... You love God and wish to share God's message prayerfully, faithfully and confidently. And if you like three-point sermons, perhaps, that all end in fully. I like this one. Starts with God. Very nice. We are looking to recruit a first-class chaplain who's a committed Christian. <laughs> yes. The, su <laughs> the successful candidates will be highly organised and have excellent interpersonal skills. We are seeking an energetic and outgoing priest to lead us on our faith journey as we share God's love to all, helping us to explore new ways to serve our communities and embrace the opportunities for connecting music and the arts to Christian spirituality. The successful applicant will be able to engage positively with the breadth of traditions in the Church of England and able to reflect theologically on mission and church growth. The postholder will be an effective team leader with experience in church planting and evangelism, as well as project slash change management, preferably within an Anglican church environment. You will be a confident communicator, working effectively with a variety of personalities, working flexibly to manage budgets and meet deadlines. I didn't mean to do different voices for different adverts, but it's all right. What advert, what accent should I do next? No, no, no. Uh, we are looking for a new rector who has significant friendships with people who are not Christians, and is an example in sharing the gospel within those relationships, is an excellent culturally engaged Bible teacher, is gifted in setting a vision 
and communicating that vision in a Jesus-centred and Bible-rich way. Okay. Now, these are actually job adverts for particular appointments or dignities, not descriptions of what a presbyter should be as such, um, because that should be assumed since all the applicants for these jobs will have had to have been ordained already. So it's not really a fair comparison with Paul's list here. I know that, and I've only quoted them selectively, of course, to give us a feel for it. But it's, at least one of them wants a Christian, though, isn't it? It's great that at least one of them wants a Christian, if he's first class. Um, it's interesting to note the sorts of things asked for, isn't it? The sort of terminology that's used. I leave it for you to decide what it means for somebody to be a first class person. Uh, to decipher the different forms of jargon that are clearly used by different parts of the church here. Can you spot the conservative evangelical one? Uh, I'm not going to ask you, really. I'm just wondering if you can. That's a rhetorical question. We don't don't want to do that. Uh, And it's hard to see that... It's not hard to see that some of these were written by committees with competing ideas. That's why they're quite long sentences that add an extra bit and an extra bit and an extra bit because somebody else said, oh, we must mention the arts. Oh, we must mention this bit. Oh, we must... You know, and it's clearly written by a committee. But actually, if we just step back from all of those, what they're all looking for is the same sort of thing in some ways, isn't it? What they're after seems to be well-organised, prayerful, loving, Christian communicators that's it isn't it well organised prayerful loving Christian communicators that would probably fit all of those I know there's more to it there's things about tradition and theology and so on but that's the essence of it and the first thing that Paul tells Timothy to look out for is that an overseer should be above reproach he's starting further back than all those adverts in one way, though he seems to take for granted what one of those adverts felt it had to spell out, that the person should be a Christian. To be above reproach means that this person should not be open to attack or criticism in the sense that they're objectively chargeable. And that's why we have criminal record checks, quite rightly, And we have safer recruitment practices. And it's why we need proper systems for clergy discipline. This person must also be the husband of one wife. Literally it says, a one-woman man. Which just always reminds me of a Kylie Minogue song from the 90s. You know, I'm a one-boy girl. Uh, This person is supposed to be a one-woman man. I could sing it later. Maybe later. Um, Yeah. I think what it's getting at here is faithfulness in personal relationships. It's not saying that you have to be married. I don't think it's saying that. It's saying that if you are, you should be faithfully married. There is a debate over whether this is banning polygamy amongst overseers. I mean, I think it is, but I don't think that was its primary intention or major concern. It could have an application to divorce and remarriage, but I think that's a much bigger and trickier issue than we can really deal with now, though obviously it does require very careful handling when considering a person for a ministry of oversight in the church. 
Many of these qualities that Timothy is to look out for in potential overseers are about personal self-discipline and maturity, aren't they? Here's the next two. Sober-minded and self-controlled. Think about what the opposite would look like in ministry, in a pastoral situation. What would the opposite of sober-minded and self-controlled look like? What if they couldn't control their eyes or their hands or their scrolling thumbs? So many wrecked lives and ministries. Think of the opposite of sober-minded. If a minister was too impulsive, too erratic and lacked any kind of composure, that's not what you need at the bedside or the graveside or at your side in a crisis. Uh, The Finnish Prime Minister, do you see her on the news recently? Got into trouble, didn't she? Uh, When a video of her raucously partying hard hit social media. Now, I don't begrudge a hard-working politician some time off to unwind, though I don't think I need to be subjected to videos of Michael Gove grooving on down to the funky beat. But uh, Finnish Prime Minister seems uh, quite keen on clubbing, uh, and there have been, therefore, questions about her drug use and self-control on that video that she was uh, seen on as a result of all that, especially at a time when her country is actually so militarily threatened by Russia that they've actually joined NATO for the first time. Well, if it seems undignified and a matter of concern for a mere prime minister, what about if a minister in the household of God is less than sober-minded and self-controlled in the actual performance of their duties? not just in their time off, in the pulpit, in public, on Twitter, at (coughs) dinner parties with congregants or in pastoral conversations. It would be a red flag, wouldn't it? However good their preaching was, it would still be a red flag. Similarly with um, three of the other things on this list where he says, not a drunkard, Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. That is the last thing that you want in somebody who is meant to help the church be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Drunkenness is often overlooked as a foible rather than a disqualifying vice. Gentleness is often underrated as a virtue and deeply missed in our polarised days. Quarrelsomeness is often excused as zeal for the truth, but the gospel doesn't call for macho machismo. Paul appeals to even his most errant congregation by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. So pugnacious contentiousness is not required here. As uh, Archbishop Cranmer's proposed revision of canon law put it in the 16th century, in preachers who are the teachers of life, there should indwell such pleasantness and modesty that they never argue bitterly among themselves, 
nor hurl invectives at each other. Fui. Might put that quote on Twitter later. None of this is to say that an overseer should not be outgoing and just keep themselves to themselves lest they hurt somebody and offend somebody by what they say. No, they need to have the ability to relate well to other people. That's the point. Hence two of the big words here, respectable and hospitable. You know, the big vicarage that you get, that's meant to make it easier for us to have people round, to be hospitable. If ministry was just about pitching up at church to preach great sermons every week, all you'd really need is a small house with a decent-sized study. One reason that the Church of England requires something bigger for us is that we are meant to use our homes to be hospitable to the people that we're caring for spiritually. That's a hard thing, especially if you're an introvert, as I am. I find you know, that kind of thing greatly exciting. I'm very gregarious and outgoing, but boy, do I feel tired after the end of that. And so it can be hard for people like that and for others. It's a hard thing, especially if you like peace and quiet and tidiness. You don't want to be having people trampling all over your tidy house. But an openness to people is crucial in somebody who wants to oversee people. Able to teach. Well, we're evangelicals, we can just skip that one. We know that one, don't we? Um, oh, no, hang on. This one is often thought to be so easy, so you know, straightforward. Let, let's just spend a little bit longer on it, maybe. In this list, people will often note, of course, that able to teach is the only skill that is required, as opposed to a character quality, which is what the other things really are. This is the only skill. That may be so. But just um, noticing that and having good textual observational skills in general is not being able to teach. We too easily think that such skills can be quickly taught and learned. Gregory of Nazianzen, who was no mean theologian himself, said this. If anyone else boldly undertakes the duty of teaching the word of God and supposes it to be within the power of every man's intellect, I'm amazed at his intelligence, not to say his folly. But to me, indeed, it seems no slight task and one requiring no little spiritual power to give in due season to each his portion of the word and to regulate with judgment the truth of our opinions." I've met some people who thought that they were well qualified for a lifelong, full-time pastoral ministry because they'd read Dig Deeper and led a few Bible studies. Why should I need to go to theological college? Two or three years of full-time training when I've already given several Bible talks on camp. I've led a small group. I've even done the local training course. Wouldn't it just be a waste of time and money and effort? To get more training. Well, yeah, I suppose it would be a waste of your time. If you're content with the superficiality of your current level of understanding. If you're sure that you already know how to answer the deep and searching questions that are going to come your way in the next 30 years. 
and that you have nothing to learn from people who were Christians before you were even a twinkle in your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather's eye. Yeah, no point you going to theological college. Uh, Gregory, the theologian, quotes Proverbs 26, verse 12, at such a person. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. And then he adds, and a still greater evil is to charge with the instruction of others a man who is not even aware of his own ignorance. Gregory himself, you may know, um, helped to keep the church of the 4th century in line with the Nicene Creed. And he speaks at length in this part of his work about the difficulties of the doctrine of the Trinity in his own contemporary context. If he struggled with it, why do you think your training is sufficient? Because you've read the old book and done a few Bible studies. Gregory particularly speaks against those who rush headlong against every form of doctrine. In swinish fashion, they trample underfoot the fair pearls of the truth. Such people, he says, uh, start out by listening to all kinds of doctrines and teachers, quote, with the intention of selecting from all what is best and safest in reliance upon no better judges of the truth than themselves. But in the end, he says that they are born and turned hither and thither by one plausible idea after another, and after being deluged and trodden down by all kinds of doctrine, and having rung the changes on a long succession of teachers and formulae, which they throw to the winds as readily as dust, their ears and minds are at last wearied out. And oh, what folly! They become equally disgusted with all forms of doctrine and assume the wretched character of deriding and despising our faith as unstable and unsound. Accordingly, to impress the truth upon a soul when it is still fresh, like wax not yet subjected to the seal, is an easier task than inscribing pious doctrine on top of inscriptions. I mean, wrong doctrines and dogmas. In other words, who's sufficient for these things? Who's sufficient? Why wouldn't you want to get the best possible training for such a dangerous and delicate task? The training you seek should be proportional to the height of your ambition. If your ambition was to be professor of medicine at Cambridge, for example, you wouldn't rest content just by reading that a great book by Bill Bryson about the human body, as entertaining and uh, as informative as it is. If you wanted to serve in the United Nations, but you couldn't be bothered learning any other languages or reading pages and pages of briefings, then pff, you're going to be laughed out of New York as an imposter with ideas above your station. Now, I know that we're not all academics or diplomats. That's not my point. The point is this. If that's how it is in Cambridge and in the United Nations, do you think it's a light and simple matter to be able to teach in the household of the living God himself? 
If you're desperately impressed with your ability already, I put it to you that you are liable to do more damage than an unqualified dentist with a runaway drill to the souls of God's precious people. So don't take it carelessly and think it's just a breeze to be able to teach. You might have made a good start and shown some promise. You may even be able to pass exams. But that's not really the same thing as being able to teach. It might be a start, but it's not the end of the strenuous spiritual work that is required to serve the God whose judgments and ways are unsearchable and inscrutable, nor to teach his people who are diverse in their spiritual needs and often intransigent and who may have problems in the next 30 years that you can't even imagine today. The Lord Jesus himself said that we will have to give an account on Judgment Day for every careless word we speak. So, James chapter 3 verse 1 should ever be before our eyes. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Not a lover of money. When I first got my my very first stipend payment um, as a curate, I'd never been so rich. It was great. I was like, wow, they're giving me all that? Are you kidding? Really? Wow. Okay. It was more money than I'd ever had uh, working uh, for news agents and for boots, which I used to do, um, and more money than I'd ever seen as a student. I felt rich in the early days of my ministry. I found it easy to gift aid thousands of pounds away to good causes. It was great. But as I've got older and the demands on my cash have increased, mostly because of children, I find it easier to slip into covetousness. Especially when I see what my university contemporaries are earning these days. Facebook's not great for that, is it? Especially with uh, inflation, energy bills, the cost of living crisis... And my 1% pay increase, thanks to the Diocese of St Albans for that. But as a minister of the living God, I'm actually called to uphold the truth that Christ's kingdom is not of this world at all. And that there is a reward to come in the next life, which far outweighs any hardships in this one. If I can't embody that truth... In my life, how can I expect my congregation to do so? Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Will we? In some parts of the world, you know, the reputation of the church has been profoundly wounded by money-grabbing priests who are always on the lookout for opportunities to charge for their ministrations. A friend in Greece told me recently that it wasn't 
the large state-provided stipends of the Orthodox Church that people resented so much as all the extras that people were expected to fork out for when the priest was around. Special prayers. Thank you very much. Special ceremonies. Just touch a card on the reader here. Thank you very much. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, not a money-making racket. Be content with what you have. Now, I think verses 4 and 5 are something of a challenge to those who think that ministry is just about Bible teaching. I think I was suckered into that early on. I thought, you know, I want to be a Bible teacher. I like teaching the Bible. I loved it when people taught it to me. I loved doing that. I loved receiving that. And so I wanted to be a Bible teacher. But that's not all there is to it. Not according to the Bible, anyway. <laughs> As evangelicals, I think we're often, over, uh, often tempted to overplay this one. The word um, is hugely important. The Bible, the, the word of God, it's hugely important. It's the infallible, inerrant instrument by which God converts and builds up his people. So preaching and teaching is massively important. Perhaps we idolise the great preachers of the past or the present. You know, some people love all those silhouettes of Charles Simeon, you know those? You see those sometimes on, pre- on you know, other ministers' walls or... You know, they actually sold them recently in a new set. You get these silhouettes of Charles Simeon preaching in different poses, uh, you know, like that. There they are. But the overseer, according to this, is meant to oversee, not just preach. And that means doing admin. And it means organising things. Groan. That means managing your own family, including the behaviour of your kids, if you've got any. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Graham Tomlin, uh, in, uh, in his book on, on uh, priesthood, uh, The Widening Circle, has a good comment on this aspect of the presbyter's life, which I, I think is very helpful. He writes uh, this... If a person is able to build good community life in his or her own family, creating a space where family members are not criticised, domineered or indulged, but nurtured and protected, a place where they can find encouragement, where they can manage their disagreements well and without rancour, where they want to return again and again, then that's quite a good indication that that person might be good at leading a church. The point is that the qualities of the church leader are akin to those required in families. Anyone who knows anything about family dynamics knows that aggressive, domineering fathers, or mothers for that matter, who require everything to work around them and for their benefits, will never foster healthy family life. So actually, I think we need some new silhouettes of ministers on the phone Ministers replying to email, paying bills, playing with and disciplining their children as well. Unless we are to give an inaccurate and overly cerebral impression about what ministry is all about. 
The word used here in the Bible for taking care of God's church is only used in one other place in the Bible. Do you know where it is? It's in the story of the Good Samaritan. It's the in-depth care that he gave to the injured man. And as I recall in that story, he didn't just come along and start preaching at the man, did he? Now, of course, chaotic inability to wrestle with emails and bills and chores and wild, disobedient children, well, that's a red flag. However good your, sorry, however good your Socratic skills are in leading small group Bible studies and however snappy your scholastic summaries of the main point of a passage might be, If someone is not a competent manager and administrator in the small setting of a household, they will not suddenly become one in the larger setting of the household of God. So Timothy is not to appoint such people. It doesn't say they have to have an MBA or something like that, you know, in in Masters of Business Administration. It's not that. But there's no public-private divide here, notice, such as we might be used to in other parts of life. How things are in the privacy of your home matters and is intimately related to your ability to care for God's household in public. Finally, it seems that the devil is out to get the overseers of the church Um, The devil is mentioned twice in verses 6 and 7. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Pride, conceit was the devil's downfall. And arrogance is the junior convert's danger. Graham Tomlin puts it nicely again. He says, proud leaders will be unable to stop drawing attention to themselves. They will be jealous of the limelight. Humility will enable leaders to get out of the way. Happy to allow that limelight to fall on Christ. Pride will want the congregation to admire the priest's sermons. Pastoral skill and record at growing successful churches. But humility... We'll be happy to see all of that happen, but we'll deflect the glory elsewhere. Uh, Why do we need to look out for a good reputation with outsiders in our overseers? That's a curious one, isn't it? Why should should we need to know what outsiders, non-Christians, think about them? I think that it might be because that can indicate whether a person's faith is genuine, sincere and stable. Because even if the outsider does not agree with your faith, they can see that it's well-meant and not hypocritical and self-serving. They can see that this is a serious person who who isn't on the make or on the take. Non-Christians cannot be arbiters of good doctrine or of Christian morality. No, of course not. But even the worldly can often see through a fraudulent piety. So don't put people like that into positions of responsibility in the church or they will fall and it won't be pretty.
Uh, we're considering these uh, different orders, uh, distinct orders of presbyters, overseers, and deacons in the conference as a whole, of course. So I'm not going to spend much time on that particular um, uh, idea of the distinction between the two orders. I guess we'll have more of that tomorrow when Mel comes and talks to us about deacons in particular. So obviously I can't say everything that needs to be said just uh, in one go here. Um, And a lot of what is said about deacons here is just taken from what is said about the overseers too. There's a certain overlap in the types of things required. But let's just look briefly at how Paul describes those who are qualified for service as deacons, um, mostly because I feel pretty smug that I made it into lots of words beginning with S. Uh, He said that they should be serious, straightforward, sober, satisfied, solid and sincere, and scrutinised. Verse 8, see if I've got this right. Uh, Deacons likewise must be dignified, that is, you know, serious. Not double-tongued, you know, sincere in what they say. Not addicted to much wine, sober. Not greedy for dishonest gain, rather satisfied with what they have. Not tempted to pilfer from the church that they're meant to be serving. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That is, they must have a solid and sincere grasp of the Christian faith. Not just be clueless volunteers. Verse 10. And let them also be tested first. And then let them serve as deacons. If they prove themselves blameless. That is they've got to be scrutinised. Or screened. Prior to being set apart. For the ministry of a deacon. Verse 11. Their wives likewise must be dignified. Not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, I confess, I'm not quite sure it should be translated wives in this verse. It is, it is a debate in the commentaries. I'm not sure if it should be translated wives. I think there's a good argument for reading this as women, not wives. Because it's about women deacons or deaconesses, not just the wives of deacons. People like Phoebe, the deacon of the church in Cancria, mentioned in Romans 16, verse 1. But either way, even I might have got that wrong, but either way, the requirement for such women who are serving in the church is that they should be dignified, not gossipy slanderers, and faithful, not flighty. That's what's needed to uphold and hold out the truth Men and women together, notice in this chapter, men and women together acting in the way that is consistent with the gospel truth that they're seeking to uphold and hold out to the world. They should all be prudent people, appropriate people to hold such a public position of trust. Again, I think it becomes clear that we can tell a lot about a person's suitability for ecclesiastical appointments from their financial statements, their drinks cabinets, the state of their desks, and the way that they talk. That's what Paul is telling us, basically, isn't it? Deacons who are acting in a service role rather than a more prominent teaching position 
are still to have well-managed households, it says. And there is a great reward for those who serve well. Good standing in the church and with God. Confidence in the faith. As John Chrysostom said, uh, sorry, Chrysostom said in the early church, a great and unspeakable reward will be reserved for him whose labours are concerned with these sheep upon which Christ places such a high value. All right, well, as usual, there's a lot more I could have said. Um, I haven't looked at verse 16 of this chapter. Um, I do wonder whether verse 16 might not actually be better connected with what we now call chapter 4 rather than chapter 3. I'll try and show you why on another occasion, perhaps. But what have we discovered in this chapter? Well, we've seen, as John Stott put it, the nature of the ministry is determined by the nature of the church. Since the church, the end of the passage, is described as the household of the living God, and it's meant to uphold and hold out the truth of the gospel to a spiritually hungry people and a spiritually needy world, that determines the kind of people we should be looking out for to appoint as our overseers. We need people who embody the gospel in their lives, can teach it clearly and sincerely, and who are competent to manage and direct the affairs of the church. As even Peter Lombard says, Christ's ministers are to be admonished that as they excel by the dignity of their order, so they must stand out by holiness of their life. And really, I hope that after I've said all that, you're thinking, yeah, it's pretty straightforward and obvious, really. Because it is, isn't it? I mean, it's just... Duh! Obvious. And so I want to ask you tonight, is this your ambition? This noblest of all ambitions. Is it your ambition? I think we should pray that the church would be well provided for in these things. And that those who serve as overseers as deacons, may by God's strength and in his grace be equipped for such an exalted and illustrious position of such magnitude in his household. Because who in their own strength could be sufficient for these things? Let me pray a, a prayer based on the, uh, the collect in the ordinal for the ordination of priests. Let's pray. Almighty God, giver of all good things, who by your Holy Spirit has appointed various orders of ministers in your church, mercifully look upon all those called to these offices and replenish them so with the truth of your doctrine and adorn them with innocence of life, that both by word and good example they may faithfully serve you in such offices, to the glory of your name and the edification of your church, to the merits of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen.